I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there. I'm your host, Simon. What happens here? If you're new, well, first of all, welcome to the show. It's a true crime podcast and a YouTube channel, just in case you're watching. What's up? Uh, the format is one of my writers, in this case, David. Thank you, David, has written me a script. This one's called The Real Life Harley Quinn. I've never read this before, honestly. I... <laughs> slightly embarrassing to admit i don't know who harley quinn is uh, i isn't this and i'm gonna deeply embarrass myself if this is not correct cartoon character in a marvel something wasn't is this if this is not related to this at all i'm like digging right like it's gonna be really embarrassing isn't this like suicide squad maybe which i have no idea what the suicide squad is i've never seen those movies i heard they were bad uh, there are also movies I'd never see. <laughs> anyway, let's just get into it. So I embarrass myself less. It is September 1980 in the town of Walla Walla, Washington State. Walla Walla absolutely sounds like a made-up place. An attractive but extremely mentally disturbed young woman, aged 24, is visiting a lover in prison. The handsome inmate, the object of the woman's adoration, discreetly passes an old book across the cheap particle board table. The woman gently takes the book, and after bidding her lover farewell, she leaves the prison. Hidden in the spine of the book is a large, gelatinous sample of the man's semen. Oh, dude, that is gross. What are you doing jerking off in a book? Is she gonna get pregnant with this, like, with this- Oh, what? No. Why? It's wrapped in a plastic glove to- Oh, what? Oh. Dude, no! Plastic glove tied at the end. A bizarre thing to smuggle out of prison, but this woman has a very special mission entrusted to her, and it is one she will pursue with the utmost devotion and fanatical zeal. Downpour of Death Three years earlier, in October 1977, we find ourselves on the rough side of Los Angeles, California. The long hangover decade of the 1970s staggers deliriously forward to its seedy conclusion. Two small-time pimps in the habit of kidnapping naive and vulnerable teenage girls and forcing them to have sex for money were embarking on a modest investment to expand their business. Um, I don't, is someone who kidnaps someone into sexual slavery a pimp? I mean, I know pimps are bad, but someone who kidnaps someone into sexual slavery is a different level of bad. Holy sh**. Did we say teenagers? Dude! No! A young prostitute, sorry David, we've got to use the word sex worker, I got told off for that, so we're going to use that. Look, I learn, I learn, look at me, I'm a big brain. It's 2022, Simon, get your together. A young sex worker named Deborah Noble has offered to sell two pimps the names and contact information of her clientele, local men who enjoy the company of ladies of negotiable virtue. Uh-oh, somebody's getting blackmailed. Also, why are you giving your name and contact information to a sex worker? That seems like a bad idea, guys. Come on, <laughs> put it in the crimes book. 
Having a ready-made list of customers would be helpful to these two pimps since they preferred customers to come to them rather than the other way around. It was easier to keep a girl hostage if she could be locked 24-7 in a bedroom for the local Johns to visit and violate rather than working the street corners. This was an important consideration for the two men. Two of their previous teenage sex slaves had recently escaped. How are they not in prison then? If you are a sex slave and you have recently escaped, there is one place you must go. The hospital? Possibly. But most importantly, the police station. And be like, yo, these guys probably going to do it again. And uh, then there's going to be more sex slaves, which is, uh, well, that's not good, is it? Deborah Noble arrived in the men's apartment, list in hand. She was accompanied by a fellow sex worker. Well, we got it right there, David. Okay. 19-year-old Yolanda Washington. Deborah gave the list of clients to the pimps. Money changed hands. After a brief small talk, Deborah Noble and Yolanda Washington departed into the night. It turned out all the names and contact information on the list were fake. Ah, you got conned, pimps. And by pimps, I mean sexual slavery kidnappers. The two pimps had been swindled. Enraged, the men went out searching for Deborah Noble to enact furious retribution. But she was no spring chicken when it came to turning tricks and robbing fools in Los Angeles. Deborah had taken the money and skipped down. The two pimps instead spotted her friend Yolanda Washington walking Sunset Boulevard, wooing potential clients with her potential role as quarters into the evening. On October the 17th, 1977, Yolanda Washington's naked corpse was found lying on a hillside next to the Ventura Freeway. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, people who kidnap women, teenagers, into sexual slavery um, are not the sort of people you want to con. Not because they can go to the police, because they will f murder you won't they? Because they've obviously got no morals. It's not a big leap from kidnapping teenagers for sexual slavery to murder, is it? It's not at all. I imagine they're both things that are going to get you life in prison. And like proper life, like no parole, life forever life. Because this is America. They do it properly. <laughs> Rope marks on her arms and legs indicated she had been bound. The two vengeful pimps had murdered her. Elandra had been vaginally and anally raped, and she had another rope tied around her neck, and she was strangled to death. Post-mortem, her body was assiduously cleaned of all traces of semen, stray hairs, and carpet fibers, reducing the forensic evidence that could tie her to a specific place or the two men via blood-type hairs and fibers. Also, DNA. Wait, when was this? 77. Ah, oh, it's blood-type. That's why. Back in the day, that's what they had. The culprits didn't need to have worried, though Yolanda was a sex worker in LA. In terms of police priorities, she was way down the fucking list. Two weeks later, on October the 31st, 1977, Judith Miller was abducted while working as a prostitute on Sunset Boulevard. She weighed approximately 90 pounds or 40 kilograms. Wow, that is very small. Judith was just 15 years old. I don't like it. She was arrested by two men posing as undercover police officers. The next day, in the early hours of November the 1st, her naked body was found in a middle-class suburban neighborhood on Alta Terrace Drive. The horrified suburbanite who found Judith covered her body with a tarp so that children would not see her when they were on their way to school. Judith Miller had been bound and multiple times she'd been sexually assaulted, and then she was strangled to death. Regardless of her young age, Judith Miller was a sex worker, and so her murder also went down the bottom of the police priority list. After 9pm on November 5th, 1977, a mere four days later, 21-year-old waitress Alyssa Caston was driving home from work at the health fair restaurant when she was pulled over by two men impersonated police officers. They handcuffed her and abducted her. The next morning, her naked body was found near a country club in Glendale. She was bound, raped, and strangled to death. And now, if the police aren't thinking serial killer, they're thinking incorrectly. Come on, all of the things very close together, very same MOs. Let's go. Come on, call the FBI. Let's do it properly. Why do I get the feeling we're not going to do it properly? 
On November 20, 1977, on a hillside between Glendale and New Rural Rock, hikers came across the body of 20-year-old Christina Weckler, a student at the Arts Center College of Design. She had been abducted, bound, vaginally and anally raped, her breasts had been subjected to extreme abuse, and she had been injected with a glass cleaner called Windex, which can be used in small doses of a primitive but painful sedative or in larger doses to induce death. She had been murdered in the early hours of that day. Good lord. Have I never heard? I don't know who this killer is, but I feel like this is such a serial killer in Los Angeles that this is something that I should have heard of already or covered already. Jesus. A few hours later, a nine-year-old boy found the bodies of Dolores Cepeda and Sonia Johnson lying in a trash heap next to Dodger Stadium. Sonia had been just 14 years old, Dolores 12. Both their bodies were badly decomposed. They'd been abducted shortly after getting off a bus on November the 13th, one week earlier. They'd both been raped and strangled to death. Jesus, David. <laughs> Content warning much? Where's that? The real life Harley Quinn. I'm like, hey, it's gonna be one that's gonna be comics. Good lord. Instead, we're talking about the murder of 12 year old. Ugh. On November the 23rd, only three days after the discovery of the previous bodies, the corpse of Evelyn King, an aspiring actress aged 28, was found lying in the bushes next to an off-ramp along the Golden State Freeway. She had also been abducted and murdered on November the 9th, two weeks earlier. Her body was so decomposed, the police were not able to determine whether she had been sexually assaulted, but they were able to determine from ligature marks that she had been strangled. It was at this point that the LAPD and LA County Sheriff's Office both began to sit up and pay attention. Really? How many bodies did it take, police? Come on. Come on, do your jobs. There's stuff to do. Stop eating donuts. Let's go. They realized that they had a serial killer on their hands, and one who was on a rampage. They did not yet know that two men were involved. Due to the locations where some of the victims had been hound, the cops drubbed the unknown perpetrator, the hillside strangler. And there we go. David, you should have put that in the title. So I knew that we were in for horror, because obviously I've heard of the hillside strangler, and I know it's horrible. Instead, you lead with Harley Quinn, and I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> why? I was like, I just recorded another episode yesterday that was absolutely horrible and i was like hey i'm gonna do the harley quinn one today because i don't know what that is but it's not gonna be horrible is it uh, i just needed a break david and you do this to me <laughs> why old habits die hard on the night of November the 28th in the San Fernando Valley, a woman looked out of her window to see 18-year-old business student Lauren Wagner being dragged, kicking and screaming, from her car by two men. She was bundled into a sedan and driven off. You better have called the police, and this better be the one that finally gets these bastards caught. Wagner had been abducted across the street from her parents' house and been coming home before a midnight curfew. The next day, Lauren Wagner's body was found in the San Rafael Hills. Police, come on! She had been bound and strangled, and her hands had been burned, indicating torture. It was later revealed that the method of torture was electrocution. Two weeks later, on the night of December the 13th, Kimberly Martin, aged 17, received a call from her agency about a job. Martin had previously worked the streets as a sex worker, but due to rumors of the hillside strangler targeting women, she had opted to work for an escort agency as a safer option. The two men had put in a call to the agency from a payphone in the Hollywood Public Library, requesting an escort for the evening and providing an address for an LA apartment. Kimberly Martin accordingly was dispatched by her agency. The two men had broken into a vacant apartment in order to meet the girl. Her body was found the next day at the end of Alvarado Boulevard, showing signs of rape, torture, and strangulation. If you... Uh, aren't they gonna... How is this any safer? This doesn't seem safer at all. 
On the evening of February the 16th, 1978, 20-year-old Cindy Hudspeth was at an upholstery shop in Los Angeles to have some work done on her car, an old orange Datsun. Cindy Hudspeth spoke about reupholstering jobs to the shop's owner, Angelo Buono. As Cindy was discussing the job, they were joined by the owner's cousin, Kenneth Bianchi. The latter beckoned to Buono to have a conversation in private, during which Cindy Hudspeth was discussed. The next day, flying over Los Angeles, a helicopter pilot observed an orange Datsun that had evidently driven off a cliff in the San Gabriel Mountains. The pilot radioed the police. When they arrived, they found Cindy Hudspeth's corpse was in the trunk of the car. She had been bound, raped, tortured, and strangled. Um, so far, I don't think we have any reason to believe that the two guys at the auto mechanics job are the murderers, but so far, they've all we've got. And it's a little bit suspicious, so let's hope that somehow it gets traced back to that chop shop or whatever. Wait, is it a chop shop? Is that what? Is that the slang, the American slang for like a body shop? I don't know. <laughs> I always hear that in movies and I've always wanted to use it. <laughs> um, let's hope they trace it back and figure out and then, uh, you know, send them to prison. It's California in the 70s. Got that death row, baby. The death toll now stood at 10 victims. Oh, you're getting that needle. It's happening. During the five months these murders were carried out, Kenneth Bianchi had been applying to the LAPD to work as a police officer. Police had taken him on several ride-alongs while they were still on the hunt for the Hillside Strangler. Dude, if you are the Hillside Strangler, that is bold. What are you doing? D if you're a murderer, don't go on ride-alongs with the police. Evidently, Bianchi's behavior on these ride-alongs was vaguely suspicious, and don't act suspicious when you're on them, because police began to question him about his whereabouts on the nights the ten women were murdered. When in late February 1978, Bianchi told his cousin, Angelo Buono, about this, Buono became infuriated. He told his cousin that he was an arrogant son of a bitch, that he had put them both at risk of getting caught, and that he had ruined a good thing that they had going. Buono threatened to kill Bianchi if the latter did not leave town. And now, it seems like these do are definitely the rapist murderer child kidnap wait the child kidnapping was someone else at the beginning or is this the it feel like it's these guys get them in prison asap or at least if you don't have enough evidence to do that have police officers watch them 24 hours a day so they stop fucking murdering people okay i don't want to see any more murders in this episode police historical police from the 1970s i'm talking to you Bianchi eventually left Los Angeles three months later in May 1978. Meanwhile, police noted the Hillside Strangler, whoever he was, had gone quiet. The investigation into the ten murders, meanwhile, was going nowhere fast. Really? Why am I talking to him about where he was? Where did he say he was? Did he have a uh, um, an alibi that wasn't his uncle, cousin, brother, something like that? Pay attention, Simon. LA was a big place with a population of 9 million people, and there were plenty of known predators and sexual sadists who would potentially fit the suspect profile. Yeah, we know this. How many casual criminals have been set in Los Angeles? I mean, set. Sounds like it's fiction. Uh, taking place in Los Angeles? I can think of at least three or four. The forensic pathologists of the LAPD were less than helpful on this one. They described the Hillside Strangler as likely being a white male in his 20s or 30s. He would be single or divorced. In any case, he would not be living with a woman. He would not have a regular job. He would have had a prior rap sheet with police. He would have come from a broken family with a childhood marred by abuse, particularly at the hands of women, to which LAPD detective Bob Grogan grimly replied, Gee, thanks. What we gotta do now is find a white male who hates his mother. Yeah, this is... <laughs> It's like it's the generic profile of someone who becomes a monster. Bianchi moved to Bellingham, Washington State, where he found work as a security guard. On January the 11th, 1979, nearly a year after the last hillside murder in L.A., Bianchi lured two students from Western Washington University into a nearby house that he was guarding. Bianchi offered Karen Manditch, age 22, a part-time house-sitting job with the place, and she had shown up with her roommate Diane Wilder, age 27. 
Bianchi raped and strangled both of them to death. Okay, well, it's these guys, isn't it? There's no doubt now. This is locked in. There was no doubt in my mind. And now it's like, how do you get away with this for so long? How is this such staggering incompetence when the police suspect this guy and he simply leaves town and picks up his crime somewhere else? Staggering. Staggering incompetence. The next day, both women were reported missing. Karen's regular employer informed police that she had accepted a house-sitting job from a security guard. With all of this information, and still... The cops phoned the security firm to inquire. The security firm, in turn, contacted Bianchi and asked him if he had breached protocol by getting a university student to watch the house for him. Bianchi denied ever meeting the girls or offering anyone a job. When Bianchi was later questioned by the police, he provided the alibi that he was at a seminar on first aid at the sheriff's reserve. Police checked and discovered that Bianchi was not present at the meeting. Dude, if you're providing an alibi that you know is fake, how about you provide an alibi that is less... I mean, it's also the police... You could even say, like, I was at the movies, and that's going to be harder to, to prove. These are the police. They'll just phone up the other police department to be like, hey, mate, was he at the seminar? And he'd be like, nah, mate, he wasn't. What are you up to? Now you're just caught in a lie. It's a massive red flag. What are you doing? Police also discovered that Bianchi had signed out the company's truck on the night of the 11th, and Bianchi said he had taken it in for repair. The local mechanic denied ever seeing Bianchi that night or servicing the vehicle. When someone this stupid gets away with crimes for so long it really does concern me because there are a lot of there are a lot of psychos out there and then there's the range of people from like dumb to smart you know like uh, it's like a bell curve right and this guy's obviously at the lower end of our bell curve he's not a very bright individual but the problem is there's also going to be psychos who are at the other end of the bell curve for every dumb guy there's a guy who's opposite smart and what about all those guys they're not getting caught at all because they wouldn't make mistakes like this I think it's pretty rare, like, just to expand on that thought a little bit on the fly, we often cover casual criminalists, and it's often, you know, you'll see other, um, you know, podcasts or articles or true crime stuff covering these people, and they'll be like, the genius killers, or like, they, they make these people sound really smart. But generally, you, you, I'll read it, I'll be like, well, he's not that bright. And generally, the people who commit these crimes, and you know, commit the crimes are not that bright. And it just made me think. There's probably an equal number of crimes being committed by smart people who are just not getting caught because they're smart. And they're probably smart, you know, and all these criminals who get caught and think they're smarter than the police but aren't. The problem is there's also a lot of people out there who are smarter than the police, which is kind of scary. <laughs> oh my god. And if they can't catch this guy and he's killed 10 people, oh my my my. When police investigated the house Bianchi was guarding, they found nothing amiss. They did, however, talk to a neighbor who claimed that on the night of the 11th, Bianchi had told her that they were testing a new security alarm at the house that he was guarding, so it's not come by and accidentally set it off. Then police discovered Karen Mandick's car hidden in a local forest. Inside, they found the bodies of Karen and Diane. Police found several pubic hairs on the bodies. More of the same pubic hairs were found in a forensic examination of the home Bianchi had been guarding. The women's bodies also bore fibers that were matched to carpets. In the same home. Police immediately pulled in Kenneth Bianchi for questioning. Good, he denied any wrongdoing. After a search of his home, they found several stolen items from the locations that he was guarding. This was enough to keep Bianchi incarcerated. Good, 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 anything to keep him locked up. And don't give him any of that bail shit. This is very serious crimes. Forensic analysts matched the pubic hairs to Bianchi. Police also found items that belonged to several more unidentified women in Bianchi's home. Meanwhile, the Bellingham police quite astutely matched the method of the two killings to the MO of the Hillside Strangler in LA a year prior. 
Hey, well done. Look, some competent police work. If you'd been more competent, this would never happened in the first place. Come on now. They confirmed that Bianchi was a resident of Los Angeles during the time that the Strangler murders were committed. Bellingham police thereupon reached out to the LAPD and the LA Sheriff's Office. The LAPD released a photograph of Kenneth Bianchi asking for any information about the man regarding the Hillside Strangler case. They were contacted by David Wood, a lawyer who had rescued a teenager named Rebecca Spears, who a year and a half ago had been forced into prostitution by Bianchi and his cousin, the owner of an LA upholstery store, Angelo Buono. Whoa, wait, so you knew this a year ago, that this woman, who has been rescued by an actual fucking lawyer, David Wood, you sound like an absolute legend. <laughs> lawyer like hero on the side he rescues this woman he's a lawyer they know that this woman was in sexual slavery by these two guys in los angeles uh sorry yeah by bianchi and his cousin and nothing is done about this how how i really have to look up who the fuck harley quinn is at the moment because i feel like i'm totally missing a reference no look it is a cartoon character in suicide squad i was right so what's this got to do with anything Harley Quinn is a character appearing in American comic books published by DC Comics. Uh, she's a comic relief henchwoman for the supervillain Joker in Batman. Okay. Okay. Um. All right, then. <laughs> I don't know how this is relevant, but let's see. Also, what was the deal with that semen in the beginning? Oh, my. Oh, no. Is one of the... Is this... Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Is one of these guys go to prison, go to prison forever, or whatever, and then he's got, like, one of these crazy women who fall in love with murderers in prison because somehow that's the thing, and now he wants to get her pregnant with his semen hidden inside a book. What are you up to? This is so weird. A pair of jokers. Kenneth Alesso Bianchi was born on May 22, 1951 in Rochester, New York. His mother, an alcoholic prostitute, gave the child up for adoption a few weeks after he was born. Kenneth was adopted by Nicholas Bianchi, a shoe factory worker, and his wife Frances. Kenneth's mother noted that from an early age, the boy was a convulsive liar. He also suffered from periodic seizures. Kenneth had an IQ of 116, but did very poorly in school. Wait, really? 116 is above average? Like, average IQ is 100. I would assume this guy definitely fell on the other side of the spectrum, judging by A, his, you know, his, no offense to security guards, but he's a security guard, and uh, he also worked in an upholstery shop. These are like working class jobs, which I don't mean working class jobs are held by people who are less smart, but this, what? And he also, he's just a terrible criminal. He's just really stupid, and or maybe he's just so bold, maybe he just thinks he's so smart. Weird. He was sent to a private Catholic school to improve his grades. Kenneth's performance got marginally better. When Nicholas Bianchi, his adopted father, died of a heart attack when Kenneth was 13, his mother Frances had to go to work to support them. Kenneth was taken out of private school and sent to public school, where he nevertheless retained decent grades and a clean-cut reputation. Bianchi was a rather handsome and dashing figure, and he had no problem getting girls in high school. He usually dated several girls at once. Conversely, Bianchi disapproved of any sort of behavior on part of his girlfriends or any sort of clothing that he would deem quote-unquote slatty. If Bianchi dated a girl, he would demand the utmost devotion and for the girl to stay away from other guys. When Bianchi graduated high school in 1970, he married one of these girlfriends, but the marriage did not last longer than a few months before she left him and the marriage was annulled. Kenneth deeply resented this rejection, and it seemed to confirm all of his notions about the waywardness and disloyalty of women. 
Kenneth did a stint in college, studying criminology and psychology before dropping out. He then spent the next few years working as a security guard and stealing things from the buildings that he protected. In 1975, when Kenneth was 24 years old, he left Rochester and went to Los Angeles, where he lived with his 41-year-old cousin, Angelo Bueno. And his cousin, in a nutshell, was a real piece of sh**. Angelo Anthony Bueno Jr. was born in 1934, also in Rochester, New York. In 1939, when Angelo was five years old, his mother and father got divorced. Thereupon, Angelo was taken by his mother to live in Los Angeles, California, where she got part-time work in a factory. Angelo was a problem child and was always getting into trouble. He had absolutely no respect for his mother, regularly calling her a cunt and a whore to her face. While in high school, he was arrested for Grand Theft Auto. Despite not being a classically handsome man, Bueno's machismo seemed to exert a spell over some women. Bueno himself was obsessed with sex. He referred to himself as the Italian Stallion. Classy, mate. Classy. In 1955, a 21-year-old Bueno got a girl pregnant, married her, and left her a week later. Not long after, Bueno was arrested for stealing another car. While he was in prison, his estranged wife gave birth to their son, Michael. Bueno refused to pay child support or permit the child to call him dad. Oh. That's a shitty move. This guy sound, does sound like a real piece of shit, doesn't he? You know, you just like some people, you just read and it's like, well, he's not hes not a murderer yet. He hasn't apparently raped anyone or anything like that. But he just does sound like, he just sounds like one of these people that's just a piece of shit. Upon release from prison in 1956, Bueno hooked up with another girl named Mary Castillo. She was soon pregnant and gave birth to their son Anthony in 1957. Not long after, Bueno married Castillo and they went on to have four more children over the course of the next five years. Bueno was verbally and physically abusive to Mary. What a surprise. The piece of shit continues to be a piece of shit. Although Bueno never drank, he beat her regularly and wanted the children to watch. Oh my dude, what are you up to? The, the not drinking thing really doesn't fit in here. I feel like this guy would love drinking. Feels, this kind of feels like alcoholic sort of behavior. At one point, he tied her to the bed and raped her so violently that Mary thought she was going to die. Bueno was also physically abusive towards the children, and some accounts go so far as to assert that he sexually abused them too. In 1964, Mary filed for divorce, citing domestic abuse. Bueno refused to pay her any child support for their five kids, and Mary was forced into poverty. Jesus Christ, dude. This guy is such a absolute dirtbag. Like, dirtbag of dirtbags. And we're in an episode where me, people have been, many people have been murdered so far. When out of desperation, Mary tried to reconcile with Bueno to get him to support them again. He tied her up, stuck a gun to her stomach, and threatened to kill her. When Mary was released, she fled and had limited contact with Bueno from that point forward. Good. Never go back. In 1965, Angela Bueno moved in with 25-year-old Nanette Campina, a single mother of two. Bueno and Campina went on to have two more children together between 1965 and 1969, bringing the family total to four. It's great that this guy, who's a complete piece of shit, is spreading his piece of shit gene everywhere. Great news for society. Mm-hmm. And he's there, you know? So not only is he doing that, but he's also being an absent dad, which I'm sure led to really great results for all of these children. Bueno subjected Nanette to verbal and physical abuse and threatened to kill her if she ever left him. In 1971, Bueno's eyes turned towards Nanette's 14-year-old daughter by a previous relationship and he raped her, saying, and I quote, I don't even want to say that, David. That is not right. That is not right. Uh, I'm just going to skip that because it's not not okay. Not long after, let's just look. It's something that some guys as a fucking psycho, sicko, dirtbag, pedo piece of shit would say. All right? Speculate. Not long after, Nanette took her four children and fled the state. For the next few years, Bueno spent his time picking up underage teenage girls, spending money on them, and plying them with alcohol. Bueno's particular brand of carnalities with these girls clearly marked him out as a textbook sexual sadist. 
shocking. He preyed on the girls' young age and naivety so that he could convince them that these sex acts were normal. Bueno also frequented prostitutes and treated them quite roughly as well. Bueno would solicit the services of a prostitute engaged in fairly depraved and humiliating acts, and afterwards he would impersonate a police officer, flash a badge of the bewildered sex worker, threaten to arrest her, and receive all of his money back and get the sexual services for free. In 1975, Bueno had saved up enough money to purchase his upholstery shop in Los Angeles, and he developed a reputation for performing decent work. His cousin, 24-year-old Kenneth Bianchi, showed up the same year to live with him. Bueno quickly took Bianchi under his wing. On the subject of women, Bueno told his younger cousin, quote, You can't let a c**t get the upper hand. Put them in their place. Someone just needs to shoot this guy. Like, you know, just an accidental shooting. It'd be great. Someone just go back in time. Just shoot this guy. Uh, like... 10 years ago before all this really went down and uh there, you know lot, there'll be so much less misery in the world it's really sad when someone just spreads so much misery around and it's just like yeah he just does <laughs> just deserves to die i'm sorry i mean i know people sometimes have a go at me for my opinion on the death penalty but how i don't understand i really struggle if you've listened to these episodes if you listen to this some people deserve to die i've really i i really and Obviously, it's a more complicated thing about that, and I know here we are debating the death penalty again, but it comes up all the time in the comments because people are like curious about my opinion on it. And on Twitter, people are like, Simon, you've really come around on the death penalty. Good for you. And also, people will be like, Simon has a terrible opinion on the death penalty. And I really like the argument for like, obviously, you can't execute innocent people, which is a huge problem because that is uh, uh, unbelievably bad. But something like this, where we know 100% sure like in a theoretical situation if we're 100 percent sure this guy deserves to die in my opinion i and i think that is morally okay <laughs> if you're playing the casual criminalist bingo you can check off the we discuss the death penalty part bianchi plays his hand Bianchi was short on money, so he and Buono decided to become pimps. They coerced teenage girls into prostitution via threats and acts of violence. This carried on for the better part of two years. Meanwhile, Bianchi moved into his own apartment. In his building was a young college student named Christina Weckler who rejected his sexual advances. A few months later, in November of 1977, she became one of the victims of the Hillside Strangler. Bianchi pivoted toward a woman named Kelly Boyd. They moved in together. In May 1977, she became pregnant with his child. Bianchi proposed to Kelly, and she hesitated to accept, since he had a tendency to lie, steal, and be extremely jealous of her around other men to the point of abusiveness. Kelly once caught Bianchi in the act of perpetrating a fraud. Bianchi, <laughs> it feels very mild, doesn't it, compared to all he's, he's compared to the other crimes? <laughs> But that, that should still be a warning sign. Bianchi had given himself false qualifications instead of a bogus therapy business in downtown LA. Wow, that is quite the fraud. That is quite bizarre. Why not just steal? <laughs> why, why make it so complicated? Nevertheless, Kelly stayed in a romantic relationship with Bianchi, hoping that he would change his ways. He had recently expressed interest in joining the LAPD. That sounds like a terrible idea, doesn't it? When the Hillside Strangler murders began in October of 1977, Bianchi covered up his frequent all-night absences by telling Kelly that he had been diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. Stage 4 is the last stage. I feel like if you got stage 4 lung cancer, you're probably not long for this world. That was a lie, but it allowed him to spend a lot of time away from her, getting what he claimed was overnight chemotherapy treatments. Kelly was supportive for the first few months of this process. Meanwhile, Bianchi and Bueno were out at night, brutalizing and murdering women 
just like her. In early 1978, as the Hillside Strangler was still racking up victims, Kelly Boyd broke up with Bianchi and went home to live with her parents in Bellingham, Washington State. Bianchi wrote her constantly, and in May 1978, he convinced Kelly to give him another shot. Bianchi quickly drove up to Bellingham to join her and got work as a security guard. This was just as well, since back in LA, Bueno was threatening to kill Bianchi if he did not leave town. Ah, this is where we were earlier in our episode. Bianchi had been too arrogant, and he had attracted the attention of the LAPD by his constant discussion of the Hillside Strangler with cops while Bianchi was on ride-alongs. They had formally interrogated him. What are you doing? You're supposed to have an IQ of 116, and you really think it's a good idea to go along on police ride-alongs. And I was wondering what made them suspicious. And it really was the most obvious thing. He's talking about a serial killer in a super creepy way, indicating that he might be that serial killer. You dumb b****. Then, in January 1979, Bianchi murdered two university students in Bellingham. He was so incompetent that he left multiple pieces of evidence leading back to him. It's quite clear in the previous hillside killings that it was Angelo Bueno, the other piece of shit, who had been the brains of the operation. When Bianchi was arrested for the murder of Karen Mandic and Diane Wilder, he claimed he had amnesia and didn't remember anything about what happened on the night of the 11th. Several items Bianchi had in his possession were traced back to victims of the Hillside Strangler. At this point, Bianchi crafted the lie that he had multiple personalities. One of these multiple personalities, Steve, had committed the murders. Bianchi claimed that Steve had not only killed Karen and Diana in Bellingham, but also carried out the LA murders with his cousin, Angelo Bueno. At this point, Bianchi had no problem throwing his cousin under the bus. If it meant Bianchi could skate past life imprisonment, with an insanity plea. Meanwhile, the LA Sheriff's Office identified Angelo Bueno as one of the men seen forcing 15-year-old Judith Miller into a car on Sunset Boulevard the night of her murder. Similarly, the neighbor who had seen the abduction of Lauren Wagner from outside her parents' house quickly identified both Bueno and Bianchi from a photo lineup. Shortly thereafter, rigorous psychological testing revealed that Bianchi was faking his mental illness and was fit to stand trial. It was at this point that prosecutors threatened Bianchi with the death penalty in Washington State for the murder of Karen and Diane if he did not testify against his cousin Angelo Buono for the hillside killings in LA. If Bianchi cooperated, prosecutors told him they'd push for life in prison instead. Duly convinced, Bianchi flipped on his cousin and gave police full details of the murders. Both deeply misogynistic, the men had been encouraged by their initial murder of Yolanda Washington and decided to go on a rampage where they raped and sodomized young women and experimented with various methods of torture before killing them and dumping them at various locations across LA. What the fuck? Angelo Bueno was arrested in Los Angeles on October 22, 1979. Unfortunately, Bianchi began to change his story, claiming that an unknown third man had performed the murders and forced him and his cousin to watch. Bianchi also began to pretend to be insane again. This destroyed Bianchi's credibility as a witness against Bueno. Bianchi's motivation for doing this was to avoid getting killed in prison for being a snitch. Without Bianchi's testimony, the district attorney wanted to throw out the case against Bueno. The presiding judge rejected this, blocked the move, and assigned the case to another prosecutor. But authorities were going to have an uphill battle, tying Bueno to the initial 10 hillside murders beyond a reasonable doubt. Meanwhile, with Bueno's fate uncertain, Bianchi began to think that he could skate free of his own life sentence if the third man he claimed to have actually committed the murders suddenly materialized. If another hillside murder occurred while Bianchi was in prison and Bueno was on trial, then surely it would exculpate them both. Um, mate, I don't think that's how it works. They'll just be like, this seems a bit suspicious, doesn't it? It's either a copycat or they paid someone. And it was in carrying out this plan that Kenneth Bianchi found a surprisingly helpful ally. Meet Veronica Compton. 
Veronica Lynn Barrea de Campero was born in 1956 to a Mexican immigrant father and a US-born mother of British descent. Her father was a wealthy businessman with alleged links to Mexican drug cartels. He was abusive to Veronica's mother and cheated on her constantly. A guy involved in a drug cartel? With such behavior? Shocking. Veronica claims that when she was five years old, her father began to molest her. The man also subjected Veronica and her brothers to brutal beatings. Veronica's miserable upbringing was exacerbated by her lifelong kidney disorder, which kept her in and out of hospital and trapped on numerous heavy medications. This sounds like a recipe for success in life, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Don't fuck up your children. In 1966, when Veronica was 10, her mother managed to secure a divorce from her father. Despite the fact that he was a Catholic traditionalist, Veronica's mother won the divorce on the grounds of his many extramarital affairs. Shortly thereafter, Veronica's father left town in disgrace, but retained contact with his children. Sounds like something they probably didn't want. According to Veronica, her older brother became the head of the household, and emulating the example of their father, the physical and emotional abuse of Veronica continued at the hands of her elder sibling. Brilliant. From this point, Veronica grew up in a chaotic, single-parent household where there were very few effective disciplinary controls. Drugs entered the household, and from an early age, Veronica used them to cope with her past and present traumas. Veronica's father had left the family well off, but this may have done more harm than good. As Veronica puts it, quote, Myself and my brothers were mocked, half-white, half-Hispanic, in an upscale white community. Drugs became my lifeline. By the time I met Ken Bianchi, I was entirely drugged, vulnerable, distorted. In 1968, when Veronica was just 12 years old, she was date-raped by a 16-year-old boy. She was trying to fit in with the older kids in the neighborhood. The perpetrator was a spoiled local teenager whom Veronica described as rather slick. He lured Veronica into a fancy muscle car provided to him by his parents. There he plied the 12-year-old with drugs and raped her. Tired of the abuse and the mounting traumas, Veronica ran away from home that same year. Shortly thereafter, she was kidnapped and forced into a prostitution ring. Jesus, this girl has... This is some, like, not a, not not lucky. She was held for several months and severely tortured during her captivity. Thanks to the intervention of concerned citizens in the local community, Veronica finally managed to escape. She returned home, but by this time Veronica had become mute, prone to night terrors, and was very sick and weak. But she was alive. Go to the police. Go to the police. A police fucking listen she was a sexual slave who was tortured this should be at the top of your priority list in 1971 at the age of 15 veronica was diagnosed with both breast cancer and cervical cancer at the age of 15 good lord this is just the unluckiest person Doctors advised her to have a hysterectomy and double mastectomies. She refused the surgeries and continued on chemotherapy and radiation treatments alone. People get these cancers so young? I thought this was like a middle age thing. Naturally, these treatments made her even more ill than her kidney condition, her traumas, and drug abuse had already rendered her. Fortunately, the treatments were effective in causing her cancers to go into remission. Meanwhile, Veronica resolved to get pregnant before she was either rendered infertile or the cancers returned and killed her. In 1974, finishing up with school at the age of 18, Veronica moved to Los Angeles to live with her father. Really? In the intervening years, he had established himself as a well-connected businessman in the upper echelons of LA society. He should be in prison. He's a fucking monster. Veronica lived with him for a while in a luxurious home in the Hollywood Hills. It was here, enjoying the flimsy glamour of a predatory 1970s LA, that a rather good-looking, if frail Veronica became sexually active to a compulsive extent. In this, she was helped along by 
lecherous older men. As Veronica puts it, I was at the age where men begin to look at you as if you are a woman, but you're not. Nevertheless, I dated dad's friends. Her childhood misfortunes had left her thin, petite, but athletic. She had an olive complexion and dark hair, a face with the strikingly defined bone structure of a beauty queen, contrasted with a slightly large but aristocratically upturned nose. As such, she gained a lot of attention from her father's merry band of older, famous, degenerate friends. And it was LA in the 1970s, a culture of exploitative sexual seediness had long since kicked in. Combined with Veronica's own deeply held desire to have a child, it was not long before, at age 19, she met a rather well-known LA boxer and became pregnant. She had a son. Unfortunately, the famous boxer in question was allegedly abusive, and Veronica was repeatedly hospitalized as a result of severe beatings. One such assault was so viciously brutal that it required partial facial reconstruction. Eventually, with the aid of three of her friends, Veronica and infant son were able to escape from this douchebag boxer and return to her father's house. But Veronica's father was a Catholic traditionalist and would not countenance having an unwed daughter with a bastard son in full view of his society friends. Wow, you just... It's just this story is filled with... It's like every character other than the victims is just a total... We've got like... What, some characters, unluckiest people ever. The other characters are all absolute mega douchebags. Like, I don't know a single person who is this douchey. It's like incredible, incredible levels of douchebagginess. So he gave Veronica a choice, either get married to a suitable man of his choosing or else withdraw and hide from all public events. Veronica chose the arranged marriage. Her father chose a well-connected LA chap named Compton, who was something of a local celebrity for helping out with the NASA Apollo missions to the moon. He was also a wealthy art collector, and he attended numerous society events and even hosted one or two. According to Veronica, he was connected to a drug lord back in Mexico, which gave her a steady supply of weed, pills, and cocaine to dull her feelings. At this point, coping with what Veronica had already gone through, she found herself totally slammed on coke. The roller coaster only accelerated from there. Veronica Compton enjoyed the LA society lifestyle for a couple of years, but ultimately she did not love her husband. The partying and promiscuity also did not help. Fortunately, Veronica's father found that a divorced mother was more publicly palatable to society friends than an unwed mother, so Veronica was permitted to seek a separation and ultimately secured a divorce. For the next step of her life, Veronica arranged for her to sit in an interview with the esteemed acting studio, the Lee Strasberg Theatre and Film Institute. She was accepted into the institute and soon became a protege of Lee Strasberg himself, one of the world's most foremost acting coaches, who also trained Dustin Hoffman, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Jane Fonda, Paul Newman, oh my gosh, it's like the luminaries of Hollywood, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Oh my. On the surface, it appeared that Veronica's life was finally about to turn around. I get the feeling she's too unlucky for that to work out. Veronica Compton studied with Lee Strasberg for two years. She excelled at acting, writing, producing, plays, and musicals. In 1977, the same year the Hillside Murders began, a 21-year-old Veronica wrote, directed, and performed her first public play, and it got favorable reviews in the newspapers. In many ways, she was for a time the hot new thing in Los Angeles. She was also being cast in lead roles of studio and local theater productions. Veronica Compton appeared in three movies. She also booked quite a bit of modeling work, becoming the phase of Hiram Walker's Two Fingers Tequila campaign. Despite her on-screen talents and physical gifts, it was clear that Veronica's primary skill was as a screenwriter, perhaps due to her past trauma, perhaps due to her snorting buckets of cocaine, perhaps both. Either way, she regularly worked as a screenwriter for a Beverly Hills production house as a playwright for the local theater scene, and she also polished up screenplays for a studio in Hollywood. Things, this is awesome. 
I, I, the only reason I'm like bummed about this is because I know this episode is horrible and I know that things are going to go horribly wrong for her. I can just sense it. It's not going to be like, and then she lived happily ever after as a Hollywood screenwriter. She got super rich and bought a mansion in Beverly Hills. Ah, uh, no. In addition to winning over people in showbiz with her talents, Veronica Compton was also extremely likable as a warm and emotionally sophisticated person and also as a bit of a party girl. She made fast friends with almost everyone. She began dating prominent Hollywood producers and directors. She became friends with John Sachs, who was heir to the Rothschild family fortune. She became the disciple of Lawrence Merrick, one-time president of the Independent Motion Pictures Producers Guild of America. As her best friend, John Fulton, who was president of the Philip Morris Talent Agency, said a few years later, quote, Everyone loved Veronica. What she did was a travesty, but what they've done to her is far worse. They took nothing into consideration, and we lost a truly great woman. Oh my god, what did she do? Wait, is she a... What? Veronica Compton, the young, beautiful actress, model, and screenwriter, eventually became the mistress of Nathan Chappelle, industry tycoon, and a man old enough to be her father. Veronica spent a couple of years trying to convince him to leave his wife for her. Meanwhile, in the late 1970s LA, cocaine was in abundance, and it was deemed socially acceptable at Hollywood parties. At the time, it was not considered as seedy or dangerous, because only the wealthy could afford it. Besides, it sure helped Veronica stay awake after all-night parties with her friends, turning to write her scripts on a deadline. The only minor side effect was relentless insomnia, hallucinations, and a spiral into madness. <laughs> I would not describe a spiral into madness as a mild side effect. <laughs> it was then in early 1980, when Veronica was just 24 years old, that she began working on a new stage play called The Mutilated Cutter. Veronica wanted the play to be about a female serial killer, and she wanted the script to plunge deep into such a person's tortured psyche. Yet Veronica lacked a frame of reference to write the character. She had suffered most of her life as a victim of other people's crimes and abuses. She did not have much experience as a predator, particularly one of a pathological, psychotic, and lethal kind. It was then that Veronica got word that Kenneth Bianchi, one of the Hillside Stranglers, was in prison, his testimony looming large over the trial of his accomplice, Angelo Bueno. What? Is she the woman from the beginning? Is she the Harley Quinn character in today's story? This is... I... I mean, I've... Wow, I didn't know this part of the Hillside Strangler thing. This is crazy. Hybristophilia. Hybristophilia is a deeply delusional, self-destructive, and psychologically embedded paraphilia, or deviant sexual proclivity, where an individual develops a deep sexual obsession with a person who has committed a crime. Far from merely being a person who happens to be romantically entangled with a criminal, a hybristophiliac becomes aroused at the thought of another person engaging in dishonest or violent activity, and with such thoughts they achieve orgasm during sexual intercourse or masturbation. The object of a hybristophiliac's affections can either be at large or in prison. They can either know the criminal personally or merely by reputation. The disorder is common enough that many criminals receive quote-unquote fan mail from dozens of individuals either declaring feelings of lust or love. In the case of the latter, hybristophiliac's romantic investment in a criminal is usually obsessive, frequently leading the hybristophiliac to adopt the criminal's moral code or lack thereof. The popular slang for hybristophilia is Bonnie and Clyde syndrome, although it's unclear if Bonnie Parker actually got sexually aroused from committing crimes with Clyde Barrow, or if she was more his incidental romantic partner 
who was just along for the ride, or whether she was a remorseless sociopath in her own right. Most hybristophilia is fairly mild and goes as far as writing romantic or pornographic letters to inmates in prison. This category of individuals is known as a prison groupie in the same sense that one may fantasize about an actor or a musician. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Who do you like? Ah, oh, you know, really like like this handsome actor, this beautiful actress, and it's like, no, 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 I just like people who commit crimes during prison. <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, <laughs> you get in trouble for laughing at people's kinks these days, but this is a weird one, isn't it? The prison groupies make up the majority of cases. Occasionally, the paraphilia escalates to the point that the hybristophiliac marries the criminal, often in prison, occasionally becoming inseminated with the criminal's child during conjugal visits, which is a bizarre thing. I think I made a video, and conjugal visits are pretty much only in the United States. Like elsewhere in the world, it's like, no, 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 you can't go and hang out and, uh, you know, have sex with people. You're in prison. It's punishment. Alternatively, a hybristophiliac may fall in love or lust with a criminal who's still at large, becoming aroused as they witness their lover's crimes or even encouraging such activity for their own sexual gratification. The common baseline of these behaviors is when a hybristophiliac will deliberately spark a conflict with an outsider, thus provoking their lover to commit an act of violence on the unwitting victim while the hybristophiliac watches in arousal. In very rare cases, hybristophiliac may actively assist their lover in carrying out their crimes or even develop a copycat mentality and start compulsively committing crimes of their own. In the case of Veronica Compton, hers was a case of hybristophilia on steroids. Generally speaking, the sort of criminal who attracts hybristophiliacs is a psychopath or a sociopath, someone who either by birth or by upbringing is extremely narcissistic, brash, ruthless, and lacking all sense of empathy towards their fellow man. Thus, a serial killer is more likely to attract hybristophiliacs than a tax cheat. Accordingly, the type of criminal is overwhelmingly associated with violence, tapping into a raw, animalistic set of feelings for the hybristophiliac and signaling a kind of unfettered, primordial strength. While a hybristophiliac can either be a man or a woman, the overwhelming majority of diagnosed hybristophiliacs are women. Statistically, women are helped out by the fact that 90% of crimes are committed by men. <laughs> It's a crazy statistic, isn't it? I bet, and, and for violent crimes, it's got to be much higher, right? And men who engage romantically or sexually with criminal women frequently commit crimes of their own and thus avoid the classification of hybristophilia. Furthermore, some psychologists assert that there are clear evolutionary reasons why hybristophilia is more common in women. The human species have their sexual instincts forged over millions of years of evolution, and the species Homo sapiens itself is over 300,000 years old. For all but the last 5,000 years of this time, most humans have lived in small, close-knit groups without written laws, police forces, or a formal judicial system. Surveys of human skeletons from the late Paleolithic have indicated that the murder rate was a whopping 10% of the population. That, I, that is mental. What? 10% people were murdered? In such a world, it wasn't actually a bad policy to link up with a ruthless, violent male psychopath who was capable of defending his woman and her offspring. Oh my god, the past was the worst. 10% of deaths were murder. It's just absolutely mad. And that was back in the day. People died of all sorts of stuff. You stub your toe and get an infection. Death. Crazy. Assuming, of course, the ruthless psycho didn't harm his mate or their children, which he often did to some degree, by all manner of abuse, physical or sexual torture, and even homicide, but provided the man wasn't so murderous that he wiped out all the children, there were valid evolutionary reasons for this mental disorder to exist. And so, hybristophilia was born for much the same reasons genetic psychopathy was. It allowed people to survive long enough 
to reproduce. In a merciless, ugly, Darwinian world, that is all evolution required. I'm glad we live in a society with all of this Because, like, if you just had to worry about getting murdered all the time, like, or defending your family with, like, fists, it'd be like, holy shit, when am I supposed to do anything else? When am I supposed to relax? <laughs> when am I supposed to do, like, fulfilling work other than just defending my family from predators? I am not built for the past. I, I'd just be like, fuck this. I'm gonna go live in the woods by myself. And while psychopathy is one of the most troubling common mental disorders, with an estimated 1 to 5% of the human population having primary or secondary psychopathy, it's so high. It's so high. It's like, that means you've definitely met psychopaths. It's estimated at least an equal number of hybristophiliacs exist, perhaps more. This massive share of the population is a relic of how effective the dark side of human nature was as a survival and mating strategy for hundreds of thousands and indeed millions of years. As the old saying goes, behind every great man is a great woman, and accordingly, behind every great monster may well be a quiveringly aroused hybristophiliac. Evolution's fucked up, isn't it? It's mad. We are all, evolutionarily speaking, still monkeys in shoes. So much of criminal history comes down to the fact that a tremendous number of us are born either monsters or enablers of monsters, and every new generation born into the human species has to bear the terrible burden of that fact. The Devil's Embrace Veronica initiated contact with Kenneth Bianchi by mail. At that time, he was being shipped back and forth between a Washington state penitentiary and a Los Angeles County jail to testify against Bueno. She wrote him what she thought was a deeply manipulative letter. She attempted to come off not only as sympathetic to his plight, but understanding and even in favor of the acts he had committed. The idea was to win Bianchi over so that it reveal some useful nuggets for Veronica Compton's stage play. This seems totally reasonable. So, is she hybristophiliac already, or does she, at this point, does she know what she is? Or is she just doing research? Because this just sounds like research. But then is she going to fall in love with him or something? And then, what was he saying? Someone was going to, like, commit some crime to make it look like the Hillside Strangler's still out? And is she going to murder someone? This, I, I have to say, I expected this, David, when I first started, uh, that it would just follow the, the normal police procedural, you know, they catch them eventually or they don't, blah, 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 blah. This has been a twist. Veronica had no interest in contacting female criminals. First of all, in the serial killer class, they weren't as in generous supply. Only a tiny minority of serial killers were women, and the majority of those were baby killers, which didn't suit Veronica's proposed anti-heroine at all. Secondly, Veronica wanted to infuse her female serial killer with the mind and predatory instincts of a man to make the monstrosity she splashed across the pages all the more bold, raw, and compelling for the audience. As for manipulating Bianchi, Veronica Compton thought that that would be easy. The two murders in Bellingham, which she catastrophically fucked up by leaving copious amounts of evidence and a direct link to him without an appropriate alibi, made him look like an idiot. Yeah, this is the thing. Even though he's apparently smart, or, you know, above average intelligence, what, 116 or whatever, he does seem, if you, re if you read the facts of this, like before, when I was saying, he sounds dumb. He sounds like he should be, you know, 16 points in the other direction. And I get the feeling that Veronica assumes the same thing. Veronica thought she was hardly dealing with a criminal mastermind. She was dealing with a stupid animal, an opportunistic rapist and a sexual sadist. That would be enough grit 
for her play. A brilliant playwright like her could deconstruct such a person easily, she arrogantly thought. What she overlooked, of course, was her own drug abuse and her own traumatic past and boatloads of mental pathologies that left her vulnerable to a compulsive liar who had practiced luring women into situations where he could strike like a viper. Yeah, I get the feeling Veronica's ignoring all of this because she thinks she's, like, over it or whatever that you know she's she's now successful she's a playwright she's got on with her life things have come up you know roses but there's a lot of deep-seated trauma that she must be dealing with because her background is just crazy filled with trauma veronica was struggling at the time raising her son alone while the boy's father was in prison on a drug smuggling charge she was also filling the role as an unhappy mistress to a rich man desperately trying to get nathan spell to divorce his wife and all the while she was fighting a severe cocaine addiction which was so bad she'd started to suffer hallucinations and convulsions within a few written replies bianchi had already set to work bringing veronica under his power in retrospect veronica's defeat in this battle of wits was a foregone conclusion as a best friend the prosperous talent agent john fulton has said at this point no one knew how much veronica was involved with drugs or bianchi someone would have helped her meanwhile kenneth bianchi may well have been remembering the words of his cousin quote you can't let a cunt get the upper hand put them in their place from the start there was a perverse personal attachment between kenneth bianchi and veronica compton as a young girl veronica had suffered many of the outrages kenneth bianchi had inflicted on others veronica had been molested raped beaten tortured and at one point forced into prostitution one would think that this would cause veronica to recoil from a monster like bianchi quite the contrary the familiar patterns drew her further in veronica confided in bianchi about her cocaine habit her partying and her troubled past bianchi replied by saying that he'd look after her and protect her if only he could be released from prison and thus the trap was set and veronica condom was immediately ensnared she was no longer talking to a potential inspiration for a play she was talking to a man who could in her mind quite reasonably assume the place of her provider protector and lover if only he could be free wow this is so crazy this is such mental manipulation like this is we thought that at the beginning i thought this guy was dumb i know this woman's you know she's going to be easier to take advantage of because of all of her troubles and addictions and stuff but wow i feel like it requires quite some mental gymnastics for that dude to get this to happen as Compton herself once said from behind the bars of a prison cell quote i was stupid to think i could get inside bianchi's head it was grandiose he ended up inside my own head you know how these men operate they charm they manipulate they terrorize that's why they get away with it again and again and again let's face it i was crazy i wasn't deciphering reality at this point i honestly wasn't taking responsibility for what i was doing i was determined to keep up this facade to keep kenneth thinking i was like him so that he would talk to me eventually bianchi and compton met face to face bianchi was only five years older than veronica he was still only 29 years old he had a strong masculine face and easy confident swagger and he projected a subtle sexual vigor let's face it as far as veronica compton was concerned bianchi was handsome he was a dish and the fact that he was capable of such violence and brutality wasn't a deal breaker far from it it was actually a turn-on hybristophilia took hold and veronica embarked on several months of conversation infatuation masturbation and delusional fantasies of what the future could be but bianchi's seduction wasn't all flowers and chocolates having unearthed all of veronica's deepest darkest secrets he threatened to report her to the police and child services for a drug habit if veronica's troubled mental state and her substance abuse were known he threatened then she would have her son taken away from her so he said it was in veronica's interest to cooperate or else for her part veronica merely accepted this emotional abuse and blackmail 
It even escalated to erotic levels. As Veronica herself states, quote, I can remember letting him punish me over the phone, as if he could reach out and grab me if I didn't obey. I would self-mutilate, if that's what he wanted. It was thus I, the carrot and the stick, the soothing word and the powerful command, that Bianchi made Veronica Compton his creature, his own personal Harley Quinn. And Veronica, having long since justified and eroticized his crimes in her own mind, thought that obedience was a small price to pay to align herself with such a raw and masculine protective power. This manipulation is crazy. And so Kenneth Bianchi dictated to Veronica Compton his plan to exculpate himself for the crimes of the Hillside Strangler in LA and the two murders in Bellingham, Washington. Bianchi instructed Veronica to kill a woman, and Bianchi told her to do it using the modus operandi of the same man who conducted the killings of 77, 78, and the double murder in Washington in 79. Veronica had to find a woman, bind her, torture her, and strangle her to death. She was also told to leave Bianchi's semen sample on the corpse. Oh my, that's... that's what's going on. Okay, it's a little bit different to what I thought at the beginning. Very, very strange. They arranged this by Veronica smuggling her lover's jizz out of Walla Walla prison, wrapped in a plastic glove, and stuffed into the spine of an old book. Nowadays, DNA testing would show that the semen matched Bianchi or his evil twin with a 20 billion to 1 rate of accuracy. But in 1980, DNA forensics were several years off, and all police would be left with was another hillside-style murder in Bellingham and a semen sample that bore a similar blood type to the other killings. While not the most ingenious or foolproof plan, Bianchi thought that this would be enough for him to challenge the charges against him, to dismiss his confession as brought on by mental illness, to show how his ramblings about a third man were accurate, and ultimately have him sprung free from prison. It's not the worst plan I've ever heard, to be honest. After a while, Bianchi would quietly disappear, and he would start his predations all over again. To cap all this off was one more brilliant tactic. In addition to murdering a woman and staging it to look like the Hillside Strangler, Veronica would send a pre-taped confession of the murder to the police. This confession would be read by a struggling male actor that Veronica would record under the guise of an audition for one of her plays. Such, for better or worse, was their plan. And now, for the execution. Whatever you say, Mr. K. On the morning of September the 19th, 1980, Veronica Compton traveled to Bellingham, Washington State with the illicit semen sample, some rope, and the false confession tape in her possession. Bellingham was the town where Bianchi had been busted for the murder of two university students in 1979, and his logic was that if a hillside murder happened in Bellingham, it would imply that the police had gotten the wrong man and the killer still resided in the town, that the Bianchi was merely insane for confessing. All Compton needed to do was find a woman, any woman, and kill her. By this point, Compton was strung out on drugs and entirely under Bianchi's spell. As Veronica herself puts it, as I deteriorated, he grew stronger. He knew he had me, someone to do his bidding. Compton arrived at the rather sleazy Shangri-La downtown motel, settled in, did a few lines of coke, and donned her disguise. Compton covered her dark hair with a blonde wig and donned a pair of glasses. She also shoved a pillow under her shirt in order to masquerade as being pregnant. Anything to throw off an accurate description of any witnesses who might see her that night. She was extremely agitated and went over the plan in her head again and again. To quote, It was important that I created a pattern killing. Ken had gone over the precise way to tie the rope a hundred times with me. It had to look like the hillside strangler had done it, or he wouldn't go free. Compton's nervousness was about fear of getting caught, paranoia brought on by drug abuse, and above all, fear of disappointing her lover. Her agitation had very little to do with the prospect of snuffing out another human being's life. 
By this point, Compton had been entirely won over to Bianchi's worldview, which justified the treatment of lesser women and sluts as mere objects to be tortured and disposed of. Not like Compton, the beautiful screenwriter. She was quality. And given she was a superior woman, why not join in the fun? It would also appear from their communications that Compton had also indulged to a certain degree in a macabre bloodlust and disturbing sexual fantasies. She reveled, at least in theory, in the suffering and death of others. In short, at this point, Compton was a severely, severely messed up human being. As she had said, quote, It was all my life before that night that allowed me to become so sadistic during that time. After a lengthy period of time doing drugs and masturbating in the motel room and psyching herself up for committing murder, Veronica Compton went out on the prowl in search of a suitable target. After a day's searching, eyeing up every woman she saw, weighing the risks and rewards of making an approach, nothing seemed to feel right. But Veronica wasn't in a rush. She would stay in Bellingham until the job was done. If it took days or even weeks, she was going to find a woman, and she was going to kill her. At 10pm that night, Compton wound up at a cocktail bar where she laid eyes on 26-year-old Kim Breed. She was a maintenance worker at the Bellingham Department of Parks and Recreation, and given she was a single mother with children to support, she did a few evenings waitressing at the bar. Compton took a seat in a booth and quietly observed her. Of course, Compton's MO couldn't follow the Hillside Strangler to the letter. Bianchi and Bueno had usually impersonated police officers and staged a phony arrest, or merely grabbed a woman on the street and dragged her to their car. Veronica Compton was alone, and not assured of the same strength that would allow her to overpower another woman. Instead, Veronica smiled at Kim Breed and struck up a conversation with her using the typical charm that had won over so many people in LA. This was according to Bianchi's direct instructions to Compton to quote, Ken told me to be as approachable as possible. I refer to those days in reference to Ken Bianchi as the days of my master. Neither Kim nor I were virgins, but she was nevertheless innocent. Naive. Veronica Compton's charisma worked, Kim Breed fell into a long chat with her amid waiting other tables. Compton told Kim that her name was Karen. Apparently, because it was 1980, Kim did not think it was terribly odd or irresponsible the pregnant woman was in a bar at 10 o'clock at night drinking. Yeah, the past everybody. <laughs> Nowadays, they're really intense about it. You look at like every bottle of beer as a little like labor with a pregnant woman and a cross through it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we know. Who looks at that? And it's like, oh yeah, I am pregnant. I shouldn't be drinking. I totally forgot. I don't think anyone. No one thinks that. Compton nursed her beverage and lingered in the bar, eventually convincing Kim to come partying with her after work. She offered the inducements of good company and hard drugs. After an hour, Kim's shift ended and the two headed off into the night. Yeah, it's... I mean, if this was a creepy dude, it'd be like, yeah, no. No, mate, no. But because it's a woman, she's like... Her guard is down for sure. The two, and also, uh, what's her face is charming. Veronica. The two women took Kim's car. Their first stop was a grocery store. Kim needed to buy some food for her kids. They also picked up some booze. The next stop was at Kim's home so she could drop off the groceries. Her children were already asleep. Then Kim and Veronica drove around for a bit, taking slugs from a bottle of booze as they did, and snorted a bit of cocaine off the dashboard. <laughs> oh my god, this is some wild ass shit. <laughs> so she's out driving, drinking from drinking hard liquor from a bottle, doing drugs, uh, with a pregnant lady. Holy shit, then no one's like, nah, this is the, this is fine. It's definitely the cocaine doesn't affect kids. Only alcohol does, but we'll, we'll just do mostly coke. <laughs> what are you doing? 
The two women then went to a local dance club where they spent a few hours dancing with some of Kim's other friends. By the time Kim and Veronica left the dance club, both of them were heavily intoxicated. At this point, Veronica convinced Kim Breed to come home with her to the Shangri-La Motel, where she was staying, in order to do some more drugs and keep the party going. Once they arrived back at the motel, more cocaine and booze flowed, and they chatted and cackled semi-coherently. It was at this point that Compton convinced Kim to pose for some quote-unquote joke bondage photos. Kim apparently thought this was hilarious. Veronica retrieved some rope and tied Kim up on the bed. It was at this point that Compton sat on Kim's back and pulled another length of rope around Kim's neck and began to strangle her as the Yankee had trained her to do. Kim struggled, but Compton kept her grip firm. To quote Compton's account of that moment, I still can't believe it was me tightening that rope. It wasn't me in every way, except physically. No, that's not it exactly. Mentally, this monster is just what I had become. I had her, straddled. I could have done it, but my heart wouldn't allow it. Veronica Compton panicked, released the grip on the rope, and fell off Kim Breed. In Compton's drug and alcohol-induced haze, she had only partially bound the 26-year-old. Kim began to untie her bindings and began screaming at Veronica for taking the joke too far. I really hope, and again I doubt it because this is a really depressing episode, that at this point, the spell da -da -da, is broken of Compton and she goes to the police and is like, holy shit guys, I just did something crazy and I think I need help. <laughs> Please do that. Please do that. Compton became upset, curled up on the motel floor, and began sobbing uncontrollably. It was at this point that Kim's anger turned to concern. Compton was on the floor in hysterics. Kim asked her would-be murderer if she was okay. Compton said she'd be fine and waved her away. At this point, Kim Breed left the motel room. Several minutes later, Veronica Compton stopped crying, staggered out of the door of her room, went on an aimless, bleary-eyed hunt for Kim Breed to finish the job before passing out into nearby bushes. Kim Breed just... that is it's a super narrow escape. Meanwhile, Kim Breed, who was also shit-faced on booze and coke, went to get her boyfriend, and they returned to the Shangri-La Motel, possibly for Kim's boyfriend to beat Veronica up. They re-entered Compton's room, finding it abandoned, and had sex on the same bed that moments later, Kim had nearly been murdered. Holy shit, guys. What are you up to? A little while later, some other motel guests found Veronica Compton lying in the bushes, woke her up, and asked her which room she was staying in. <laughs> it's quite a scene, isn't it? Is that, a is, is that someone asleep in the bushes over there? If it, it's interesting. If it was a woman, I'd be like, uh-oh. If it was a man, I'd be like, that guy got shit-faced. <laughs> the kind strangers then escorted the disorientated woman back there so she could sleep off whatever she'd taken that night. There, Compton found Kim and her boyfriend fucking on her bed. They desisted, and Kim, still outraged to Compton, taking a joke too far, refused to look at her. Kim and her boyfriend left soon after. That is what- that- if that is not the weirdest night of your life, you've had a crazy life. Because that- that's the cra that's so crazy. What are you doing? <laughs> well, there was a bed and we just thought, you know, why not have sex in there, even though we went there to a scene of an almost murder. It's like, yeah, why not? May as well. Go on then. Okay. Compton passed out on her bed and woke up several hours later in the late morning of the 20th, feeling awful. Surprise, surprise. Kim Breed, meanwhile, not fully being aware of what had transpired the night before, did not report the attempted murder to the police. Veronica Compton lingered in bed for a few hours and did another few rails of cocaine to give her a burst of energy for the day, overcoming her withdrawal symptoms and her massive hangover. She was nevertheless numb and not altogether conscious of what she was doing. Compton went to the airport and bought a ticket to San Francisco. At the San Francisco airport, Veronica mailed the false confession tape to the Bellingham police, despite the fact that no murder had taken place. <laughs> uh, what are you doing? Why? How much? You are on way too many drugs. 
Thereupon, Veronica Compton started walking up to strangers and babbling about how the Hillside Strangler was on the loose. She was so disorientated and aggressive that security had to be called to calm the woman down. When Compton was held by security, they took a photograph of her. Veronica was released and spent the next 24 hours sleeping off her drug-induced haze in a San Francisco hotel room. <laughs> you got to wake up and be like, oh my god, what did I do? <laughs> it's like that, that the hangover movie, <laughs> except much, much, much worse. Thereupon, she caught another flight to Los Angeles, returned to her residence, and was reunited with her son. A few days later, Bellingham police received the bogus confession tape in the mail. The man on the tape said that Kenneth Bianchi was an innocent man and indicated that the recent strangling of a woman in Bellingham proved that he, the hillside strangler, was still alive and at large. The man on the tape described the murder of the unnamed woman as her being bound, raped, tortured, and strangled. Yet, there had been no murder in Bellingham recently. The police are either like, boys, did we miss something really big? We should go check the motels. Or they're like, it's a fake confession. It happens all the time. Police sent out a call to the public seeking information on what they presumed was Kenneth Bianchi's accomplice. They also released the details of the supposed murder on the tape. Kimbreed heard the announcement. The MO the police described sounded vaguely familiar to what Veronica Compton had attempted to do at the Shangri-La. Suddenly, Kim realized it wasn't just a joke that had gone too far. She was nearly murdered by a coked-up crazy person, so she contacted the police. Good. Are we gonna... Is Veronica... I'm not Veronica. Yes, Veronica, sorry. There's there's lots of people in today's episode. The uh the 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 woman who the potential murderer. Is she going to go to prison without murdering anyone? That'd be really nice cuz she is super troubled and she is super manipulated and she needs help badly. And if she murdered someone, that's going to be a whole different shake in the court system. Bellingham police interviewed Kim Breed, who described Compton as a dark-haired woman whose wig had fallen off during the struggle and who appeared to be faking a pregnancy. Bellingham quickly linked Compton's real description of the photograph to a woman who had caused a scene at the San Francisco airport a few days before, rambling about the return of the Hillside Strangler. Kim Breed later identified Compton from this photograph. On October 2, 1980, Veronica Compton was arrested at her residence in Los Angeles for attempted murder. It was not, to say the least, a well-executed crime. Even if Compton had not committed the murder and let Kim Breed escape, it was only her mailing the tape and freaking out at the airport that led to her police attention. Which, honestly, is probably a good thing because it meant she's not going to murder anyone because... Uh, hopefully the police are going to break the spell or lock her up until the spell is broken. Without Veronica being a drugged-up idiot, Kim Breed would never have reported the incident and Compton would have never been arrested. I dare say that Veronica Compton is responsible for creating a few new rules for criminals for our growing list. Yeah, on the other hand, I mean, she was crazy on drugs and all this stuff and her being crazy on drugs is why she was so easy to manipulate by Bianchi. So it all kind of fits together in some insane way. And eventually she gets caught and basically saved from being a murderer. Where she'd probably end up getting caught anyway because she's just not very competent at crime. So I think this actually did herself a favor in a kind of roundabout way. Blood-soaked breasts Veronica Compton's bail was set at $500,000 or $1.8 million today, adjusting for inflation. Despite her father's affluence and her personal success in showbiz, there was no way she could afford this bond. Instead, Compton was kept at Sybil Brand Jail, the same women's facility that had previously housed the Manson women. While Compton was at Sybil Brand, she was kept in a cell down the hall from Carol Bundy, a female serial killer and hystrophiliac who had aided the murders 
of Douglas Clark. The so-called Sunset Strip killers murdered over six women and had sex with their corpses. Holy shit. <laughs> There's a lot of failures in today's videos, isn't there? Carol Bundy and Compton shouted to each other, swapping stories. Compton recalls, Bundy was terrifying. I'll never forget the way she described her crimes. Her voice from down this dark hall. Decapitations. Dressing up faces. Having sex with dead bodies. All I could think was what the hell have I done? This isn't me. This account is somewhat contradicted by testimony that Compton was actually intrigued by necrophilia at the time, having later written, I never met a dead person I didn't like. Although now in prison, her mind was fairly addled and disturbed. By this time, she was shockingly similar in behavior to Harley Quinn. And this wasn't the last friendly contact that Compton would have with the Sunset Strip killers. In 1981, Veronica Compton was convicted of attempted murder and given a life sentence with the possibility of parole after 12 years. She began serving her sentence at Gig Harbor Prison in Washington State. I feel like that is, for someone who is clearly so troubled and so manipulated and could probably be an excellent witness on the Bianchi trial, that does feel like she could have got a better lawyer. At the trial, Veronica appeared as a rather confused and demented figure. The prosecution referred to Compton as extremely dangerous because she is bizarre. The judge said, <laughs> what? The judge said she was so vile that she deserved to spend the rest of her life behind bars. Meanwhile, Kenneth Bianchi, his plans foiled, stayed in prison in Walla Walla. For the murder of 12 women, he had initially received a life sentence without the possibility of parole, but in exchange for testifying against Angelo Bueno, he later received the faint possibility of parole after 30 years should he no longer be deemed a threat to society. That dude is always going to be a threat to society, and he needs to die behind bars. That is, he murdered 12 people. Are you joking? Meanwhile, how about, how about we give him, um life in prison without parole and save him the needle. Maybe that would have been a better deal to strike. Meanwhile, the trial of Angelo Bono became one of the longest and most torturous in American history, lasting two years from November 1981 to November 1983. Bueno's lawyers managed to separate the trial for the murders from the trial for multiple counts of rape, assault, and forced prostitution, so the jury on the murder trial would not hear Bueno's long history of abusing women. The judge allowed this so that Bueno could not use the claim of a prejudiced jury to appeal his murder convictions later on. The prosecutor. <laughs> what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, we're going to appeal a prejudiced jury. Why is the jury prejudiced? Well, they knew about all my abuse and rape. Um, I, I just call that background information, mate, that the jury should be aware of because it paints you as the fucking monster that you are. The prosecution initially relied on Bianchi's testimony, but when he took the stand, he appeared so insane and unreliable that the defense immediately moved to have the case thrown out, taking their appeals all the way to the California Supreme Court. These appeals took over a year. Meanwhile, due to the fame, or rather infamy, of the Hillside Stranglers, it took three and a half months to select an impartial jury. Fortunately, the prosecution succeeded in getting the charges of rape, assault, and forced prostitution to be included again in the same trial, so that all Bueno's misdeeds could be heard and the Hillside murders could be placed in their proper context. Yes, that sounds right. The other way just sounded insane. Bueno was a piece of shit who had tormented women his entire life. So determined were the prosecution to not let Bueno slip the net that the trial included over a thousand evidence exhibits and over 250 witnesses testified. That, no wonder it took so bloody long. <laughs> I was like, they want him dead. They really want him dead. And I'm here for it. One of the witnesses to take the stand for the defense was Veronica Compton. She proceeded to tell a deranged story where Kenneth Bianchi and her had conspired to frame Bueno for murder. 
The court was shocked. One observer commented, The logic and sequence of this conspiracy were impossible to follow, and her manner, that of a starlet courting recognition on a television talk show, coquettish, then dramatic, tearful, giggly, self-caressing, was far more arresting than her conspiracy story. When the prosecutor examined Veronica Compton, she gleefully announced to the court that she was considering opening a mortuary when she got out of prison so she could have sex with the corpses. What are you talking about? Veronica went on to list a variety of sex acts she was into, including both self-mutilation and harm done to others, and arousal at all things macabre. The only other thing the prosecution managed to drag out of her was that she was angry with Bianchi for convincing her to try and strangle Kim Breed. Ultimately, after two weeks of deliberations, the jury found Angelo Bueno guilty of the murder of Evelyn King, aged 28, Alyssa Castin, 21, Christina Reckler and Cindy Hudspeth, both aged 20, Lauren Ragnar, 18, Kimberly Martin, 17, Judith Millis, 15, Sonia Johnson, 14, and Laura Cepeda, aged only 12. Due to lack of evidence, Bono was found not guilty of the murder of Yolanda Washington, aged 19, the revenge-fueled murder of an innocent bystander, all because the killers could not find her friend, Deborah Noble. Yolanda's murder had kicked off Bianchi and Bueno's reign of terror. Angelo Bueno was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. As for Veronica Compton's relationship with Kenneth Bianchi, there are two conflicting accounts. Compton herself said that as soon as she failed to kill Kimbreed and exonerate him, Bianchi immediately dropped Compton like a hot potato. She was no longer of use to him. Another account claims that Bianchi continued to write to Compton in prison for a time, but Compton had lost interest in Bianchi because she had meanwhile fallen in love with another serial killer, because of course she did. Did you not learn your lesson? <laughs> you really not learn your lesson? Good lord. In 1982, Douglas Clark, the husband of Carol Bundy, whom Compton met in Sybil Brand Jail and one of the Sunset Strip killers, wrote a letter to Veronica Compton. Again, we have two conflicting accounts of what transpired. According to Veronica's account, given to a sympathetic true crime author while Compton was behind bars, Clark impersonated a lawsuit student, expressing interest in Veronica's case and concern for her plight. In the same account, Compton said that Clark soon changed his story, claiming that he was a wrongfully convicted man on death row. That's uh, quite a change from law student, isn't it? In order for their communication to continue, their letters were sent to an intermediary, the house of one of Clark's friends in LA. Clark would address his letters to the house, and these in turn would be forwarded along to Veronica and vice versa. According to Veronica Compton, the letters entirely discussed the facts of her case and were, quote, quite academic and loveless. Then, to Veronica's shock and dismay, Clark turned around and announced publicly that he'd been corresponding with Compton and that he claims the two were in love. The other accounts of Clark and Compton's correspondence, largely touted and upheld by journalists, go somewhat differently. There was no deception. Clark wrote Compton, and the two quickly began to engage in a harlequin romance pun very much intended. On Valentine's Day, Clark sent her a letter with a photo of a decapitated female corpse. In one extract from their correspondence, which I could not verify as authentic, Voronka wrote to Clark, I take out my straight razor, and with one quick stroke I slit the veins in the crook of your arm. Your blood spurts out and spills atop my swelled breasts. Then, later that night, we cuddle in each other's arms before the fireplace and dress each other's wounds with kisses and loving caresses. At one point, it was rumored that Compton and Clark were engaged to be married. The latter account accords with Compton's performance in court, because when she announced wanting to buy a mortuary in order to have sex with the corpses, she didn't want to do it alone. She announced that she was wanted to run the mortuary with Doug Clark. Also, the kinky and macabre sex acts Compton described on the stand, she claimed she wanted to perform with Clark. According to the less flattering account of their correspondence, the two continued to write each other until sometime in 1988, a year after Compton had begun corresponding with yet another man. She is not mentally well. Why is she in prison? She needs to be in a psychiatric hospital. 
Like, unquestionably, she's clearly mad. Did no one try this in court and be like, look, she's clearly mad. She's clearly mad. Why? This isn't... This This seems so crazy. This hasn't even been brought up that she's clearly lost her fucking mind. The favorable accounts of these events given by Compton were written at a time when she was still seeking parole, so that would explain her intention to whitewash history if she was being untruthful. Her story also replaces Bianchi's semen sample with a rope that he had made. The accounts involving headless valentines and blood-soaked boobs, if true, would indicate that Compton's tendency towards histriophilia extended far beyond Kenneth Bianchi. One cannot even blame such madness on the abuse of cocaine. In prison, Compton had no choice but to get clean. Yet, according to the latter accounts, Compton continued to correspond with a sick and twisted serial killer and necrophiliac for several years. At the time of writing, Douglas Clark is still alive, aged 74, and is still on death row, awaiting execution. They do take a long time with the executions. <laughs> when was this being said? This is like in the 1980s? God damn, guys! Come on! Pornographic murals for toddlers. In 1988, Veronica Compton was still in prison. Her parole opportunities would not begin until 1994. For the entire seven years that Compton had been in prison, she had heard nothing from her son, who was now 13 years old. Veronica constantly mailed her son letters and care packages on a weekly basis, but Veronica's father, who had custody of the boy, refused to let Veronica have any contact with him. Veronica's father even went so far as to change the family phone number. Then, in 1988, Veronica was told by one of the prison counselors that her son had run away from home. He had been arrested and sent to juvenile detention. Allegedly, this was in response to physical abuse from Veronica's father. Veronica was then told her son wanted to speak to her on the phone. During the conversation, her son broke into tears, telling Veronica that he wanted her to come home. Veronica told her son to sit tight and that she'd think of something. You're in prison. What are you going to do? Run away from prison? Escape prison? Come on. And I imagine for your crimes, you're in a fairly substantial prison. Not long afterwards, Veronica Compton somehow escaped from Gig Harbor Prison. Oh my God. She really did. But statistically if you escape from prison you're going back to prison really soon afterwards and they're gonna slap many more years on it for escaping prison she arrived in california and phoned her son's girlfriends but the fbi had already picked up her son and placed him into protective custody and was staking out his girlfriend's house veronica what are you thinking you escape from prison after having a conversation the prison counselor is going to spill the beans you go to see your son obviously the police are there waiting for you Come on, get it together. Veronica got a message to her son that she would meet him at a location in Arizona the following week. Veronica's plan was to obtain false IDs, run across the border into Mexico, and live there with her son until he was 21. Then, at least according to Veronica's version of events, she would selflessly turn herself back over to the authorities. The FBI intercepted the message detailing the Arizona rendezvous and arrested Compton. She was returned to Gig Harbor Prison and given two additional years on her sentence for the escape. She would not be eligible for parole until 1996, when her son would indeed be 21 years old. One silver lining was that unlike the previous seven years, Compton was henceforth allowed to communicate with her son. As Veronica Compton languished in prison, she began researching the U.S. legal system, particularly in relation to female offenders. Like so many inmates, she became a jailhouse lawyer and legal activist. In 1987, Compton listened to a lecture on crime and punishment delivered by Professor James Wallace of Eastern Washington University. Wallace was a legal expert who sometimes traveled to prisons to educate the inmates. Shortly after his visit in 1987, Compton wrote Professor Wallace a letter requesting more information about the topics discussed in his lecture. Compton was still young and hot. Wallace was old, married, and horny. Things quickly blossomed into a romance. 
After Veronica's botched escape attempt, Wallace began advising Compton on how to clean up her act in anticipation of her parole in 1996. It was around this time that Compton is rumored to have cut off her correspondence with serial killer and necrophiliac Douglas Clark. Probably good advice there, old Wallace. So, uh, yeah, you're going up for parole, huh? Maybe it's best you don't write letters, you know, really affectionate letters to a necrophiliac serial killer who you said you wanted to run a morgue with so that you could have sex with the bodies. Maybe a good idea. It's probably not going to look brilliant in front of the parole board. And this guy also wants to then have sex with her. What the fuck, my dude? <laughs> it's quite clear from Compton's later writing that she adopted the academic language of the humanities, probably learning the style of writing from Wallace. She also began to behave like a model prisoner, getting involved in volunteer work and various advocacy programs to better the lives of female inmates. She also began an amateur sociological study of the lives of women in the U.S. prison system from her first-hand perspective, providing James Wallace with anecdotes. Compton tutored her fellow inmates in English. At Wallace's insistence, she also converted to Christianity. Compton certainly knew what notes to play with the parole board, once writing, Rehabilitation is real. I needed to be here to know myself, to understand the demons driving me so close to evil, to Kenneth, to drugs. I had to come to understand how I could be so self-defeating despite topical success. Who I became originated in early sexual and physical trauma, but one does heal. And again, I bring it back to the idea, wouldn't a healing have happened a lot better in a psychiatric facility rather than a prison? Am I, I can't be the only one who's read this entire thing or you guys have listened to this entire episode and are just thinking that she's mentally ill. She's mentally ill. Unquestionably. Am I insane? Am I insane myself? Let me know in the comments if you're watching on YouTube because I, it, this doesn't seem correct. This doesn't seem right. Thus, Compton simultaneously praised the effectiveness of the U.S. prison system, implied that she was fully rehabilitated in advance of her parole hearings, while at the same time laying the majority of the blame for her actions on Kenneth Bianchi, her troubled childhood, and the drugs. And rightly so. These are the reasons. These are why you became who you were. I, am I... I just don't see... I just don't really think that she's a fundamentally... I, just me? Is it just me? David and I seem to be on totally different pages. Such was the impressiveness of Compton's redemption that the Seattle Times once referred to her as an angel. Well, I definitely wouldn't go that far, Seattle Times, although we seem to be closer on the same page than me and David. As for Veronica's romance with James Wallace, at the time they began their correspondence, Veronica was 31 years old and was, by all accounts, still a beautiful woman. Pictures taken of her time in the prison gym somewhere around 1990s show her in it to be in good shape with bleach blonde hair and a rather glamorous face adorned with makeup that she'd somehow obtained. James Wallace, on the other hand, was 57 years old in 1987 and had been married to the same woman for 36 years. Wallace later asserted to the media that he did not leave his wife for Veronica Monica Compton, quote, my own marriage just plain dissipated, as they do sometimes. We have just grown apart. Professor Wallace nevertheless remained married to his wife for a further two years before, in 1989, he divorced her and immediately married Compton. Some people have accused Wallace of being a rare male with hysterophilia in the ultimate irony of Veronica Compton's story. The simpler explanation might be that a nearly 60-year-old Wallace had his head turned by good-looking women in her early 30s who had expressed an interest in him, causing Wallace to abandon a stale marriage to women he'd been with since 1951. Yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> Wallace is just a dirty old man, in my opinion. <laughs> Wallace the lawyer, uh-oh, might be still alive. 
He wouldn't be the first man to have a midlife crisis and run off with a much younger woman, and he won't be the last. But usually, most such men run off with women who aren't in prison for attempted murder, who don't fall in love with serial killers multiple times, and who don't publicly declare that they want to fuck dead bodies. Yes, Mr. Wallace, what are you up to? Professor Wallace defended Compton in the media, saying, quote, You're not dealing with a monster. She's done a monstrous thing, but she's not a monster. People change. If she had been that way when I first met her, I would have had nothing to do with her at all. She has made a different person of herself. On the question of Wallace suffering from his own case of hysterophilia, or merely being desperate to hook up with a younger woman, as well as accusations that Veronica was just using him, yes, but, but. <laughs> What a surprise. Veronica said, quote, I'm not besotted with Veronica. I love my wife. Veronica attracts a lot of men. She could easily have had someone younger and with more money. She chose me because of my character, and I chose Veronica for hers. All right, mate. <laughs> I'll simply submit those words without comment and allow the audience to judge what they're worth. And me, I don't think they're worth very much, old Wallace. Wallace made weekly trips to Gig Harbor Prison to visit Veronica. After a series of conjugal visits in 1993, Veronica Compton Wallace gave birth to a daughter. Professor Wallace made weekend trips to the prison so that the infant girl could bond with her mother. Veronica stockpiled her breast milk through the week so that she could feed it to her daughter on the weekends. When James Wallace went on a restrictive diet to deal with heart trouble, Veronica cooked a week's worth of meals for him in the prison kitchen, which she carried back home in a big ice chest. Professor Wallace bleated trampoline to the breast. Since then, my cholesterol level has gone down 50 points. That's not a monster. That's not a monster. He repeated it twice. Like, he's like, <laughs> I just feel his voice like, this is how I'd say it. That's not a monster. That's not a monster. <laughs> like, just tiny bit of questioning in there, right? Three years later, in 1996, at age 40, Veronica Compton Wallace received parole and left Gig Harbor Prison to live with James Wallace and their daughter in the town of Cheney, Washington State. During her parole, Veronica was supposed to go to regular mental health counseling, finally, which she failed to attend. Oh dear. After two weeks out of prison, police officers and a social worker went to Veronica and James's house to check on the welfare of the three-year-old daughter. According to police, Veronica answered the door naked. She may or may not have been under the influence of narcotics. When police and the social worker entered the home, they saw that Veronica had painted several pornographic murals on the walls, which were inappropriate for a child to see. <laughs> Veronica, why? Go to your mental health meetings, for God's sake, clearly you need them. Police also found among the documents in the house that Veronica had written several articles about necrophilia and other sexual paraphilias. Thus, after 82 weeks, Veronica Compton was packed off back to prison. Professor James Wallace disputed what had happened that day. He claimed that Veronica didn't answer the door naked, but was wearing a peach-colored robe. He claimed that Veronica's writings about necrophilia were a joke. Wallace also disputed that the murals on the walls were pornographic and declared that he was going to hire a child development expert to tell him if the images would be bad for his daughter's development. Wallace said to the media, Quote, she's been lynched. In this case, the parole board was both investigator, prosecutor, and judge. Mate, it's a parole board. What all they do, you've already been judged. All the parole board is there to do is to see whether you're violating patrol or not, par parole or not, and then the original judgment applies. What are you talking about? Aren't you supposed to be a professor of fucking law? Or a law professor? Weren't you a law professor? What are you talking about? <laughs> At Veronica's parole violation hearing, chairwoman Catherine Bale noted that prior to Veronica's release, she had repeatedly told prison guards that she had married Professor Wallace and had a child simply to get out of prison and that she had no intention of staying with either of them. Upon questioning at the hearing, Veronica did not deny making these remarks. James Wallace, for his part, denied their significance and reasserted that Veronica was very much devoted to her family. Mr. Wallace, you are just blinded by... I don't want to say love, but lust, I guess. Allegedly, in my opinion, three years later, in 1999, Veronica Compton Wallace was denied parole, with the board claiming that 
She was still mentally unstable and still represented a threat to society. That same year, at Professor Wallace's encouragement, Veronica began a research project on women in the U.S. prison system, where she interviewed her fellow inmates and compiled a lot of outside data and legal theory. The resulting book, published in 2002, Eating the Ashes, Seeking Rehabilitation Within the U.S. Penal System, stays completely away from discussing Veronica's own story and focuses on entirely discussing female rehabilitation in abstract. But the subtext of the book is easy to read. It conveniently concludes, among other things, that most women turn to crime because they had an abusive male somewhere in their past. While that certainly is true for a lot of female criminals, and it's certainly true for Veronica, it is perhaps a little too convenient that the arguments Veronica put forward release her of any responsibility of her actions and lay the blame squarely on her father, her brother, Kenneth Bianchi, Douglas Clark, and numerous other men. Look, all of these people are to blame. But you also have to have a degree of self-ownership. Like, I've been saying throughout this episode that obviously she was manipulated and that she's mentally ill. But even then, you do... Unless you are completely um, diminished responsibility, unless you completely, like, are out of it, then you do have... Uh, not just a modicum, but you have like a lot of responsibility for your actions. You can't just blame other people constantly. There's some blame to go around, but you're ultimately the person who did these things. Regular viewers of The Casual Criminalist will already know the overwhelming majority of psychopaths and serial killers of some sort of abusive childhood. John Wayne Gacy doesn't get a free pass for his abusive childhood. He still raped, tortured, and murdered over 30 young men. He was still held accountable for his crimes. The traumas of our past do not completely erase our crimes in the present. I really think there's a big difference here, and, I'm, and I don't think David's quite highlighting it the same way I would. I would say... With Gacy, yes, he had a horribly abusive childhood. Um, and then he committed crimes, which had an enormous gravity. Like, Gacy is one of the worst, as you'll probably have seen in the episode by your, the time you're seeing this, or just you're familiar with John Wayne Gacy. The crimes he committed were so exceptionally bad that it's just, it almost defies belief. The crime that Compton committed was attempted murder. And also, Gacy wasn't being manipulated at the time that he was committing the crimes, whereas Compton was. I don't think these are really good analogies at all. I mean, difference of opinion, I suppose. It's not, David's not wrong, I'm not right. It's just, I think we have different opinions on, on this one. The book's message is entirely consistent with Veronica's earlier writings about herself, entirely refusing to take responsibility for the attempted murder of Kim Breed and claiming that she was merely quote-unquote crazy at the time and had ceased to be herself. It's worth noting that in 1981, Veronica Compton did not plead guilty by reason of insanity. When Veronica does discuss her past, she describes the action of attempted murder as heinous, but she regularly disassociates that action from herself mentally or spiritually. It was as if Kim Breed was merely struck by lightning. In 2003, shortly after the publication of Eating the Ashes, Veronica Compton-Wallace was paroled and has since then managed to stay out of prison. Available sources indicate that she stayed married to James Wallace for roughly a decade before online resources go quiet. Given he was born in 1930s, quite possibly dead by now, Veronica, now aged 66, has kept a fairly low profile, occasionally posting pictures of her paintings online, putting out music on the internet, which quite frankly sounds pretty awful, and dabbling in various forms of social media. She used to run a Twitter account and a regularly updated page on Facebook before stopping both, then taking the Facebook page down in 2018. Since then, the real-life Harley Quinn has disappeared into obscurity, probably for the best. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. 
Angelo Buono spent the rest of his life behind bars. Despite this, in 1986, the self-professed Italian stallion married a civil servant and single mother of three who contacted him while in prison. No words on hybristophilia. Buono died of a heart attack on September 21, 2002. In 2005, a young man named Christopher, Buono's grandson, by way of his one of his former abused wives, Mary Castillo, found out his great-grandfather's true identity. Two years later, in 2007, Christopher shot Mary Castillo in the head before committing suicide. Holy shit. That's crazy. Why would he shoot her? She was a... What you did? Can't explain that. (laughs) Number two. Kenneth Bianchi is still alive and well, still imprisoned at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, now aged 70. As part of his deal to testify against Bueno, he was given a life sentence with the possibility of parole. He was denied parole in 2010 and will next be eligible in 2025. Wow, that's a stretch, isn't it? You get denied parole, it's another 15 years in jail. Where you belong. In 2013, a New Orleans-based artist named Nina Schwanzi launched an art exhibit called Holding It Against Me, the Veronica Compton Archive. In this exhibit, Schwanzi pretends to be Veronica Compton, to whom she bears a striking physical resemblance, and faked a bunch of risque photos, letters to Kenneth Bianchi, and even wrote a mock version of the play The Mutilated Cutter. Jen should be warned, a lot of Google search photos of Compton are actually of Schwanzi. Her fictionalized version of Compton is largely portrayed as an unrepentant and sick-minded sociopath. Schwanzi gave an interview to the now-defunct art review website Pelican Bomb. Three years later, in 2016, the real Veronica Compton-Wallace reached out to Pelican Bomb to tell her side of the story. In the last public interview Veronica ever conducted, she recounts her abusive childhood, discusses her newest paintings and songs, and reiterates how she was completely crazy when she attempted to murder Kim Breed. In this particular version of events, she blames her actions entirely on the drugs she was doing. Number four. As far as available sources go since her release from prison in 2003, despite her declarations at the trial of Angelo Bueno, Veronica Compton-Wallace never became the owner of a mortuary. May this forever be the case. And may she get the help that she clearly and desperately needs. Good lord. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for watching. Bit of a brutal one. And it was a brutal one that I recorded yesterday. I did two in a row. And, uh, I'm, uh, I want some. I was like, Harley Quinn, this is going to be easier, <laughs> right? Harley Quinn is like from comic books. <laughs> but I've also seen The Punisher, that TV show, which was about comic books. I stopped watching when it's just like a five minute scene of him beating some guy's face in. And I was like, no, 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 no I don't want that kind of violence. As we always say, CSI not Saw. Ah, Saw's horrible. Thank you very much for watching. Uh, reviews always appreciated. Comments, like, subscribe. Thank you very much, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.